All right, well, Thursday, what's Thursday? Halloween. And if you are very reformed, what is Thursday? Reformation Day, right? Now, so Reformation Day, yeah, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Church door uh, there in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, But Halloween, yeah, and Halloween is that one day a year when, get this, people are going to come to your door, and they're going to knock, and they're going to say, you know, hello, or trick-or-treat, or whatever they're going to say, and they want you to give them candy. And so like John said earlier, give them candy, right? We will practice church discipline if you give out candy corn or those orange marshmallow peanuts. Okay? Those are nasty and like not fit for a dog. But when they buy some good candy, okay, and then give those cards away. And so if you want, if you want to be really fancy, go ahead and get you some little bags and put all the candy in there and put the card in there and you just drop it real fast. It's an easy, non-cumbersome way. But either way, give these little cards away, just a way to invite people. Um, Super easy. But with Halloween coming, there's all kinds of, you know, scary and spooky stuff out there, Stephen King-like stuff out there. And I'm not a big fan of, of scary or horror movies. For me, I feel like the devil has enough ammunition to bombard my head with. I'm not going to willingly give him more. So at our house, horror movies, those are kind of out of bounds. But I do enjoy a Stephen King movie that's on TV pretty much every single night. I've talked about it before, Shawshank Redemption. It's on like every single night, just about. You can watch it, at least pieces of it, throughout the week. And it's the story of Andy Dufresne, who's falsely accused for murdering his wife and the man she was having an affair with. And he goes to prison, and it's just the story of him being in prison. I don't want to give away too much if you ever do wind up watching it. Um, And some of it's pretty brutal. um, But throughout the movie... There's this evil game warden, not game warden. (laughs) There's this evil warden. Uh, Game warden just has nothing to do. But we, when I was growing up, one of my friend's dad was a game warden. And we constantly, I'm not kidding, we constantly had to call him to come and help us run off coon, competing coon clubs that were on our land catching coons. So that game warden, I think warden, game warden, but evil warden in prison, not game warden, prison, all right, evil guy, seriously, he was. And ironically, he had a sign, like cross-stitch sign, that was covering a safe, um, there it is, that says, his judgment cometh. And that right soon. Now, that safe, all kinds of evil activity was taken. So it's ironic that he has this sign, his judgment cometh, and that right soon. Now, that is not a Bible verse. Okay? Seems like it might be, especially King James-like translation, but it's not a Bible verse. But it does very much kind of capture the theme of where we're at in 2 Kings. 
Because what's been going on is, is for centuries, right? The kingdom split. You had David, Solomon, and then the kingdom split. Northern kingdom, confusingly still called Israel. Southern kingdom, Judah. The line of the Messiah was going to come through Judah. Okay, But you've got these two kingdoms. They've split. And for centuries, they've been involved in idolatry, turning from God. And for centuries, God has been patient with them. He's been calling. He's been pleading to them. Please come back. Please come back. Please come back. If you don't, judgment is going to come. And so he's warned them. He's been patient with them. And they don't deserve a warning. Right? They deserve condemnation immediately. But God has been patient. Gracious to them. Slow to anger. Delayed his judgment. And he's done this over and over and over. And he sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And we've really camped out on Elijah and Elisha. But in chapters 12 through 16, some of the kings that we're kind of fast forwarding through, that's where you get Isaiah. That's where you get Amos. That's where you get a lot of these guys under King Azariah, also known as Uzziah. Prophet after prophet, calling them, come home, repent, come back, come back, come back, come back. By the time we come to chapter 17, God finally gives them what they want. Separation from Him. That's what they want. And so His judgment cometh. And on earth, the vehicle for God's judgment on Israel is the Assyrians. And if you read chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, it's pretty fascinating just geopolitically how God's working sovereignly through alliances and relationships and, 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 you know, treason kind of in these alliances to set this up for the Assyrians to come and crush Israel. And so when you come to chapter 17, verses 1 through 6 are kind of like just a quick summary of the what, like what happened. All right. How it happened, what happened, that's what it's all about. To the point that in the wake of this, in the aftermath of this, the northern kingdom does not exist. The ten tribes, they call them the lost tribes, of, they do not exist. They are gone. They are wiped out. They are destroyed. They do not exist. Only the little nation of Judah in the south is still there. And it will continue for another 140 years before it too faces judgment and exile. And so verses 1 through 6 give us the what, all right? But then when you get to verse 7, you're going to see the narrative completely shift and it's going to turn to kind of an explanation. It's going to shift and the writer's going to stop talking about the what and start explaining to us why, why all this has happened. A, a spiritual autopsy is what we're going to see. And that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning because I think there's a lot of application in this, both definitely for non-Christians and for those of us in this room who may think that we're Christians, but maybe we're actually not. And there's application for Christians as well. And so let's read it together and let's be open to the warning of the Lord in our own hearts. We'll read the whole thing, then we'll make our way through and perform this spiritual autopsy. So, 1 Kings chapter 17, page 323, in the black cardback Bibles around you. If you don't have one, we're going to read verses 1 through 23. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, so he's the king of Judah, and he's bad. 
He's, he burns his sons as offerings. Bad. So in the twelfth year of his reign there in Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. That's the, the northern tribe, right? And he, re- he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. And we just fast forwarded through a, a ton if you read chapters 12 through 16. And they were all evil, every single one of them. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt. Like just politically, he was worried about what was going on. He's like, I went out of this Assyrian thing, I'll get, the, I'll get Egypt to help me out. And he offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. And then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, that's the capital, and for three years he besieged it. Now we read that really fast, but think about being in the city that's being besieged for three years. That is destruction and death and horror. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, who's Sargon II, you can find inscriptions historically about all these guys, Hoshea, Sargon, Salmanasser. The king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the city of Medes. And so that's it. Okay, ten tribes, gone. Do not exist. Now to the why. Verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and Asherim on every high hill. Asherim is, is like a fertility goddess. It has to do with sexuality. Set those up on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did. Whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants and prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been. Again, centuries of calling out to them. From like 1,000 to 721. That's when the Assyrians took them out. 721. Verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. 
And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, so this is kind of a back, looking back to when the, the, the split happened. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And so the rest of the chapter then is about Assyria resettling uh, Samaria. That's where the Samaritans in the New Testament come from. It's this mixture of some of the northern tribe with Assyrians. And those are the Samaritans. But again, I want to focus on the why of what's going on here. And, and performing this spiritual autopsy of the death of Israel is not really hard because verse 7 flat out says, And this occurred because... And then this long thing, and as I looked at it, I think we can really break it down into four kind of causes of death. And the first one is this. I've already kind of given it away. They were ungrateful for God's grace. Okay, they were ungrateful for God's grace. Look at verse 7 again. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so do you see, and then they serve other gods. And so do you see their ungratefulness here? Like God had done all of these things for them. He had delivered them from Egypt. Like the Exodus, the, everything that takes place with the Exodus, from the plagues to the first Passover to the parting of the Red Sea, all of these things were you know, given and happened as a lasting testimony to the undeserved grace of God. Undeserved. But they didn't care. They were ungrateful. We deserve this. I mean, entitled. And bringing this home to you and I, like we do the very same thing. We'll be ungrateful for all that God's worked in our lives, both salvifically and just His grace ongoingly. 
And then we'll excuse our ingratitude and entitlement because we've grown so sinfully accustomed to constantly complaining that it's just the norm. And we don't even realize, A, that it's sin, or B, if we do, we relegate it to like a minor transgression. Not a damnable offense. My friends, as Karl Barth puts it, grace evokes gratitude. Or should evoke gratitude like the voice of an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder following lightning. And where it doesn't, our pride and entitlement is a direct insult to the loving kindness of God. I mean, just think about how you feel when you go out of your way to, and at great expense, financially, emotionally, from a time-consuming, you know, I don't know how to put that in the right phraseology, but it's just very time-consuming. And you do all this, you pour yourself out for someone, and you do all of these things, and you're not doing it because you want them to say things, you're doing it because you love them, but they don't even say a thank you at all. Just like they assume, of course you should do that for me. Now multiply that feeling times infinity. We multiply it by infinity because, like, what we deserve, what we deserve is just what Israel deserves. We deserve damnation. We deserve judgment because we are all left to ourselves sinners. So that is what we deserve on our own. And on our own, we have no hope because we can never attain to the sinlessness and holiness that God demands. And so in grace, God sent Jesus to be our substitute. To live a perfect, sinless life that we haven't done. We have not lived it. And to die the death that we've been condemned to die for our sin. Jesus was a substitute for that as well. And to rise again in victory over sin and death. To give us a gift we could never earn. The forgiveness of our sin. And so out of gratitude for that. Just as the Israelites should have gratitude for God's salvation through the Exodus, the Exodus foreshadows this salvific moment with Jesus. Out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, let that drive us to living lives of thanksgiving, to living with an attitude of gratitude in all things. Because 1 Thessalonians 5, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Somebody says, well, how do I do that? How do I you know, live with this attitude that's, that's constantly thankful. One of the ways is by constantly meditating on the truth of the gospel. Our undeserving in Christ's grace and giving. Constantly rehearsing that in our mind. Constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's how. And that's one of the reasons why God gave the Israelites the Passover. 
as a means of constantly reminding them of what he's done. And that's why he's given us the Lord's Supper, which is the fulfillment of the Passover, as a means of constantly reminding us of what Christ has done. That's why we should do it regularly. We'll actually be doing it next week. So that, I mean, so that we don't forget what God has done. So we're confronted regularly with what the Lord has done. And that we fasten our eyes on the Redeemer and His grace for us. And so it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for us to give thanks. All right? So that's one of the things they did not do as we performed this spiritual autopsy. They lacked gratitude. And it was one of their causes of death. Don't let it be for you. Let's learn to actively be thankful people. All right? Second cause of death as we do this autopsy is that they conformed to the world. They conformed to the world. So number one, they, did not, they, they were ungrateful for God's grace. Number two, they conformed to the world. And so just, just look at the text here. Look at verse 7 again. Let's read that. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. We just read that part. Now, and walked in the customs of the nations. They conformed to the world, right? The customs of the nation whom the Lord had drove out from before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Now skip down to verse 11. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did. They conformed to the world whom the Lord had carried out before them. Now look down to verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like. They conformed to the pattern of this world. Israel was called to be holy, to be distinct, to be different, to be unique, to be unusual, to be unconventional, okay, to be outsiders to the culture. But they didn't. They conformed to the world around them and they wound up destroyed. Friends, likewise, the church has been called to be holy. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And to be distinct and to be different and to be unique and to be unusual and to be unconventional to be outsiders that's why the apostle paul writes very specifically in romans chapter 12 i appeal to you brothers therefore by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship verse 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You renew your mind in God's Word, what we're doing right now as well. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. They were conformed to the world. That's one of the reasons they died. So, like, don't be conformed to the world. That's what Paul says. Do not be conformed to the world. Now, listen. This does not mean that we wall ourselves off in a bombshell shelter mentality and just totally ignore the world and try to hide from it. 
Nor does it mean that we should just assimilate and accept the world's ever-changing standards of right and wrong that are based purely upon popular opinion in that moment, whether or not it's actually helpful or harmful. It's just popular opinion, constantly revolving. We don't do either of those. Our call is to an engaged, quoting Russell Moore here, an engaged alienation, a Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our calling as neighbors and friends and citizens. In other words, Christians are called to be nonconformists. We are called to nonconformity. And so this means that we have to maybe even have a mental shift a little bit perhaps and understand and embrace the fact that we are outsiders. Like if we are going to live for Jesus, we will currently and ever increasingly be out of step with the culture. Just as Jesus was, just as all his disciples were, and that's why they were all killed. Except for John, who was just boiled in water and exiled on the island of Patmos. And he survived the boiling in a pot of water. This is something like this, this truth that we will be outsiders is something we have to get. We have to understand you can't live for Christ and the world at the same time. And by world, I'm meaning sin and worldliness. We, obviously, we should care for the world, but I'm using it a different way. You can't live for both of these things at the same time. So one guy put it this way. He said, love for the world and all that that is pushes out love for God. And love for God pushes out love for the world. And so if we are going to love God, we are going to be an outsider in this world. That's something we just have to accept and understand and know. It's part of the cost of following Christ. But friends, it's also actually that distinction from the world... Okay, the distinction, not our assimilation to the world, but our distinction from it that highlights the message of Jesus to the world. So, for example, every other year I take a trip to Central Asia. John, every other year, takes a trip to Central Asia. His year was this year. My year is next year. And every time we go there, I stick out like a sore thumb. And John, perhaps even more so. He's taller and he's blonde, right? Stick out like a sore thumb. But what happens then is people then want to talk to us because we're Americans, because we're different. So it's not our assimilation. It's not us looking like uh, Central Asian people. It's the fact that we look very different from Central Asian people, that we talk different, that we come from a different place, that we have a different way of doing things that draws people to us and wants to want to talk to us. It's the distinctiveness, not the assimilation. And it's the same thing for us as Christians. If we assimilate and we just adopt the moral and spiritual views of our culture, well, for one, we're out of step with what God has called us to. We're bowing our knees to culture as king, not Christ as king. But number two, we totally lose our distinction, which is the very thing that marks us off as a Christian. There's something different about that person. 
And friends, you, you know, first and foremost, what, our, what the distinction is. As Christians, the distinction is the gospel. It's that we serve another king. It's that we believe a dead man came back to life. And it changes everything. Everything about us then changes because of that belief. We, we, we read his word, we understand his word, and it changes how we view sexuality, how we view money, how we view school, how we view others, how we pursue relationships, why we go to school, why we pursue careers, why we do sports, why we engage in the arts, why we join clubs, if we get married, and what we pursue as our life's aim. All of these things are affected by the gospel. And we recognize that the priorities of this present world system are different from those that are to come in the age to come. And so because, if we are Christian, every single one of these things is to be informed by Christ and His Word, that will absolutely make us outsiders. And the world will at best consider us foolish. At best. At worst, as harmful. And so folks, we need to know that. Our perspective in living in this world has to be shifted and realize this truth. That to live for Christ is to be an outsider in this world. It's not our home. We are sojourners passing through. We are citizens of heaven. And we live in this world, but not of this world. Not that the world is unimportant. No, in fact, our kingdom vision pushes us into the world to love mercy, seek justice, and walk humbly before our God. It pushes us to care for the least of these and speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. But even as we do that, it will make us outsiders. And so know this. Live with this changed perspective, understanding this. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. I think there's also a warning for us practically in verse 8 about how this happens. Look, look, as Israel fell, look, look at verse 8, what they, what they did, how it happened. Verse 8, And they walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel, of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God, things that were not right. And there's a period. Like, that's how it began. It began in the early years with them practicing secretly things that the Lord did not want them to do. By the time we get almost 300 years later, after this period, look at it. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, no longer secret, right? From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars in Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree and they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did and so it went from being a secret thing at first by the end no it's overt there's no denying they've built stuff and worships on every place every town every tree okay they're sinning now openly because sin has a way of becoming more obvious and more overt over time. 
I mean, it's like last week. I separated all you guys into two categories. Y'all are putting it out on Facebook and all that, but we had one category that was the Old Yeller Club, and we had one category that was the Stranger Things Club, right? So we had those two categories, but the point of both of those illustrations that I gave was that you can't try to tame or harbor something that will kill you. You have to, as John Owen Puritan said, you've got to be killing sin lest it be killing you. And so that means that we have to be as vigilant in our lives, and we touched on this a little bit last week, to avoid misdemeanors just as much as we are to avoid felonies. Because most people do not intend to become moral failures. But when they wind up that way, it is because of a lot of bad little decisions that they made along the way. And so it's like this. Physically, in general, I try to be a healthy person, right? And I get there's some genetic makeup that plays into that, but I also do work, okay? Now, nothing crazy, uh, For example, yesterday was a bad day. Sarah can, I pretty much ate a whole bag of Cheetos while I watched the Tennessee game. They were the healthy ones, so that's my one thing. But nothing too too crazy. Uh, In a few days, just to be honest with you, I will impose my yearly daddy tax on Halloween candy. And so don't judge me. I am loving my children, showing them what absurdity our taxes are. Here, give me 40% of that. Thank you. I do the daddy tax. That is a true story. But on the whole, I, do, I, try, I try to eat fairly well. And I try to get good sleep. And I try to do some moderate weight training and some running and some stretching. And so just several really little things done consistently over the long haul make a difference. Right? Now, you flip that around. Still, we're kind of talking in the, in the health sense here. Still very, very small things. Little things. But not eating well, not exercising regularly, not getting good sleep, not working out, not stretching. Again, all of these little things, but not done over the long haul, health deteriorates, opening you up to an increased possibility of greater ailments. And that's like the things that we might label as little sins. Things that none of us think are really that big deal. Maybe even ingratitude as we talked about. Or any other little thing. But you allow them to go on and on. Secretly maybe. And over the long haul you get sick. And you open yourself up to increasingly deeper ailments. And so that's why Old Yeller, Stranger Things, you make war. You don't play around with that thing. You don't play in secret, you drag it into the light, and you fight. You get help from others if needed. Because again, our distinctiveness as Christians isn't that we don't sin. Of course we do. That's the whole reason we rejoice in a Savior. That there is a gospel, that there is good news, what gospel means. That there is forgiveness. But we agree with God about what is sin. We don't try to redefine it. Eh, That's not sin anymore because I said so. We fight, but not the Israelites. The Israelites completely conform to the culture around them. And so then let's ask, what about you? What influences your thoughts and beliefs more? 
God's word or the culture? God's word or your political platform? As Philip Ryken put it, if we are wise, we will think critically, not judgmentally, but critically about the goals and ambitions of our friends and acquaintances in secular society. Their greed is not good for us. Their lust will not give us life. The pleasure they pursue will not bring peace to our souls. Friends, do not be like Israel. Heed Paul's instructions. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right? And so number one, Israel suffered God's judgment. The, the next one, the next two are a lot faster. Don't worry. Number one, Israel suffered God's judgment because they were ungrateful for His grace. Number two, because they conformed to the world. And now, number three, because they rejected God's warnings. They rejected God's warnings. Look at verse 13, here in chapter 17. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn! from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been who had not believed in the Lord their God. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them. And so twice here we see that they rejected God's warnings. That they spurned the Lord's call to repentance. And the reason they did this is because verse 14, they were stubborn, a.k.a. hard-hearted. And also because verse 15, they went after false idols. And notice this, became false. They pursued false idols, and because of that, they became false. That is, you become like what or who you worship. You do. You become like what or who you worship. And so on Sarah's side of the family, we have five nieces and nephews. All right? The oldest one is named Caleb. And when Caleb was an infant, man, he loved him some smashed up sweet potatoes loved it, loved those Gerber, you know, whatever. Maybe it's not Gerber, but you know what I'm talking about. Just that food puree stuff, sweet potato. He loved that stuff. And so his mom, Sarah's sister, Brandis, gave it to him constantly. Fed him that stuff constantly. And over time, I kid you not, he turned Oompa Loompa orange. <laughs> he really did. And I looked it up this week because I was like, is that real? Is that a f-? And no, I'm like, if you eat lots of carrots or pumpkins or what, things that are loaded in beta carotene, it will start to show up in your skin if you're overdosing on that. And so that's what he did. He ate all that. And so, like, you ladies, you can save some money on your spray-on tans. <laughs> eat you some sweet potatoes. But here's the point that I want you to see in, in, in this. What Caleb consumed changed him. It really did. What he consumed changed him. He became orange. 
And so again, you will become like what you worship or who you worship. And so if you're constantly drinking in or, or eating, you know, uh, a love of praise or a love of money or a love of sexual pleasure or a love of success, you're constantly gobbling that up. It will change you spiritually. And so don't reject the warnings of Scripture that call you back from that. Turn from idols. Turn, as we saying, turn from your statues made of gold. Rise from your knees. Stop worshiping the splinters of broken God. Turn and see your king. Don't ignore God's warnings. Don't spurn God's conviction in your own heart, in your own life, as he convicts you of sin or something. Don't spurn that. God's conviction in your life is a sign of his love for you. That he's not done with you, that he's not giving up on you, that he wants to change you. Don't spurn it. Turn. Repent. God is gracious and always open to repentant idolaters. All right? So again, number one, Cause of death, they thought they were, ungr- they were ungrateful for God's grace. Number two, they conformed to the world. Number three, they rejected God's gracious warnings. But in reality, all of those things are symptoms. They're all symptoms of a greater disease. And that greater disease is number four. They did all these things, number four, because ultimately... They did not believe. Ultimately, they did not believe. It's the sin of unbelief. That, that's the disease that all these things spring out of. They did not believe in God or that God really is who He says He is and really will do what He says He will do or that He was worthy of worship. They didn't believe one of those three things. I'll show it to you. Look at verse 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. 15. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. You see this. They abandoned all the commandments. They despised His statutes and His covenant. And it's straight up, verse 14, they did not believe. Now here's the reality. Israel probably would have claimed that they still worshipped God. Oh yeah, we still worship Yahweh, you know, we got a bunch of other guys as well, but we still worship him. And they would have all probably justified their actions of, you know, conforming to the world and abandoning the commandments of the Lord. And we hear that and we think to ourselves, how dumb could they be? Like if you reject the Lord's statutes and covenants and you go after false idols and you abandon all the commands of the Lord, well, obviously you don't believe. 
right? And I agree with that. But here's what we got to see. Many of us do that all the time. We reject God's word. Nope, not for me. But we still claim to follow him. We say, no, God, you are wrong. You're outdated. But I still want my get out of hell free card. Now, I want to be very careful here. Some of you who feel the weight of your sin. I want to encourage you. Don't don't be anxious. God will complete the good work that He is working in you. Keep fighting, keep striving, keep praying. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So those of you who may be prone to anxiety over whether or not God loves you, I want to be very careful here and I want to encourage you in that. But some of you in here, the reality reality is you're lost. You're hanging on to a moment in time when maybe you prayed this prayer long ago or signed a card. Praying a prayer or signing a card isn't salvation. Walking down an aisle, moving from one geographic location to another geographic location is not salvation. What's going on in your heart? And has it been proven out over the long haul? We all struggle. We all slip and fall. Backslide. But what does the long haul look like in your life? And so I want you to think a little bit. Again, I'm not trying to scare anyone out of their salvation. But if you're actually not a believer and you're sitting in here thinking you are, then yeah, I want the Spirit to scare you. Because stated belief plus actual practice over the long haul equals actual belief. Stated belief, I believe this, plus actual practice, how you have lived for the long haul, shows you what you actually believe. Long haul. Anybody can look backslidden in a moment. Anybody can look, you know, like a champ in a moment. Long haul. And so if that's you, if your life does not back up the profession you make with your lips, if you're lacking fruit, you crave other things, in verse 16 here, they abandoned all the, when it says they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, this isn't that they struggled, but they kept fighting and they kept repenting. No, this is they straight up abandoned. Bold faced abandonment is a sign of a lack of saving faith. And so, listen, if you are a Christian, the call, truly, the call to you this morning is, is to check yourself. We should all do this. Like if you're truly His, nothing can ever pluck you out of His hand. Jesus says this in John chapter 10. I and my Father are one. Nothing can take you out of my Father's hand. Nothing. But we can hinder 
the Spirit's work in us and through us and for us by living lives of ungratefulness, conforming to the world and rejecting God's convictions. And so learn from the blood of Israel here so you don't have to learn from your own blood. But the major point and thrust of the text is actually for non-believers. And especially for those like Israel who think they are part of God's people, but aren't. Cultural Christians, I grew up this way, fakers, frauds, posers. That's who this text is aimed at. And the major point of this text is that in the end, God will do the same thing to every non-believer that he did to Israel. Rejection. He will administer the ultimate punishment and judgment, which is to be banished from his sight. Just as he removed the northern kingdom from his presence in the land, so Jesus will say at the final judgment, even to those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? He will say, depart from me, all you workers of lawlessness. I don't delight in telling you these things. But I am aiming to be honest with you. Judgment is real. Hell is real. Eternity in heaven or hell is a reality. And Jesus is the only thing or person that makes a difference. Like the default position of all of, all of us is hell. That's the default position of every single person. It's judgment. That's not what some people deserve. That's what every person deserves. So just take a little walk down the Romans road with me. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, all, says that the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 10, 9, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so friend, I don't know where you might be if you are a solid Christian, awesome, praise the Lord, keep going. If you know that you are not a believer, or you are a faker or a poser, cultural Christian, whatever it is, this is offered to you freely, with great joy. If Jesus didn't want to save you, one, he wouldn't have gone to the cross for you. Two, you wouldn't be in here right now with all that's happened in your life, with him wooing you and calling you, sinner, come home. The fact that you are here and you're feeling in your heart what you're feeling is evidence that Christ loves you and He's drawing you to Himself. And so don't spurn the warnings of the Lord. Don't spurn the convictions of Christ. Trust Him. He loves you. He's for you. He offers this. Take it. But if not, the reality is, judgment cometh, and that right soon. Let's pray.
Father, the reality of heaven and hell is striking. It is heavy. It is overwhelming. The thought of everlasting torment. But Father, you offer salvation. And salvation is more than just fear of hell. It is a latching on to that which is the greatest, the most supreme treasure. That exists. And has always existed. And that's you. Lord. And so I pray, Father, that you would stir in us right now and you would cause conviction in us if we're believers, that you would convict us of sin in areas where we've strayed and that you would call us back to yourself and we would turn and we would repent and we would know that, you're, that you love us and you're for us and this, your conviction in our life is a good thing and you're, 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 you're transforming us by the renewing of our mind. And Father, I pray for those in this room who maybe aren't a Christian or aren't yet a Christian, that, you would tr- that they would trust you, that, they, that you would stir and bother them. And whether they trust you by faith today or in the days to come, you would just be an annoying pebble in their shoe that they can't get rid of and they can't stop thinking about and that you would ultimately... regenerate them, that they would ultimately trust you by faith, be forgiven of their sins, and be, be a new creation, and begin walking, stumbling forward. And so, Father, we just pray for your spirit. I pray that you would encourage those who are anxious, and that you would Convict those who are prideful. In Jesus' name, amen.